Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Janelle James. And he said, I can't stop looking at you. You're too beautiful. All right? And then he licked my whole ear. (laughs) (laughs) That and more. But before that, for all you connoisseurs of our Stamps.com ads, here is the original Stamps.com song that we recorded in 2013. Oh, a trip to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or pack. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scanner. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code RISK for a four-week trial. Plus $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bear Mountain behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Danger Signs. Three stories where the storyteller found themselves in a rather perilous position. Holy crap. It's been so discombobulating trying to get into the swing of 2017. I was... So many trips. I went to Berlin and Amsterdam with JC, the producer of the show. And then I went to Cincinnati to see my family. And it was so long, so long away from home. And when I finally got back to New York, I was just laid on the floor vomiting with sickness. I actually, I think it it was from butt licking. I think I got it from butt licking. That doesn't happen 99% of the time. But uh, it did a couple days ago. And my cat Donkey is sick too. If you follow me on Twitter and Facebook and all, you know Donkey pretty well. Well, he needs help now too. But the main thing, the main thing I've been dealing with is realizing, you know, I just finally had to admit to myself the other day that I have been struggling with depression about this uh, political situation we're in right now. I mean, it kind of doesn't help that I've been reading so many books and watching so many documentaries about authoritarianism and uh, 
kleptocracies and stuff like that, trying to educate myself. I have discovered a couple new exciting ways to get active. There's a fellow named Michael Skolnick. He's created a newsletter that will share with you actions you can take every week. S-K-O-L-N-I-K. There's also a guy named Bo Willimon who created the Action Group Network, which is a website that kind of does the same thing, informs you what kind of actions you can be taking week by week. And don't forget the Women's March on Washington. You don't have to be a woman to be there. Is on January 21st. You can get there, get there. But one thing that always helps when I'm feeling low is to hear people sharing their experience, the things they care the most about, their most intimate feelings and thoughts. And uh, we have some great ones today. One we'll hear in just a bit that Tommy Craven shared when we were last in Baltimore. But the first one comes from our show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We do that show once a month. This is Janelle James. You can find her at JanelleJamesComedy.com with a story we call Ear of the Beholder. Uh, my story happened uh, when I was 19, so like four years ago. Uh, I had just moved to New York for the first time. This is my second time doing New York. But the first time I moved to New York, I said I had told my mom I was going to go to fashion school, but that was a lie. I really moved so that I could uh, get away from this boyfriend that I had that was like too old for me. And he was like smothering me with love and shit, and I, I didn't like it. He was just getting on my nerves, you know? He would ask me to make him sandwiches all the time, shit like that. So I didn't want to make sandwiches, so <laughs> I broke up with him the same way that I still break up with people I left the state. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to New York, and I thought I'd be doing like the whole like starving artist thing, but that was before I realized in order to do the starving artist thing in New York, you gotta come from money. So uh, that didn't work out. I found myself in a temp job at a law firm wearing, you know, the full suit with stockings and the fucking block heels and shit every day. I ended up having a crash with my uncle in the Bronx. And uh, <laughs> so I just had this like long commute every day in this suit. I was just like really depressed. I hadn't found a new guy. I hadn't done any blow, none of the cool shit that I thought New York was a lad I had seen on TV that represents New York. So one day I'm sitting on the train. It's super packed, rush hour, 8 a.m. I'm reading a book. This is when people still used to read books. I feel someone staring at me. I'm not from New York, but I know you're not supposed to look anybody in the eye, you know, so I was trying to, like, figure out who was looking at me without, like, getting in a fight or whatever, but I couldn't figure out, but, my like, the hairs on my arms was, like, standing up. In front of me, directly in front of me, it had this guy, and he had on Timberlands construction boots, you know, and he had on denim jeans with, like, the paint splatters, he had, like, really rough hands, he had like the construction hat clipped on the back of his pants. And that used to be my shit, you know, because my dad 
was a construction worker and you know with time and therapy and shit I figured out I've been trying to fuck my dad my whole life but that's not what the story is about that's not what the story is about so I'm looking I'm like the boots the hands you know and he's like mad fine but he's staring he's like burning a hole in the top of my head you know so I did the like passive aggressive like you know you know like stop looking you know but he kept staring at me so finally I just looked up and I was like can you stop staring at me and he was holding on to the railing above me and he bent down and he got really close to my ear and he said I can't stop looking at you you're too beautiful all right and then he licked my whole ear So I was just like so shocked, you know, but like at the same time, like sploosh, and uh, yeah, I was just so shocked. And he was like, Can I have your number? And I was like, What? You know, and he's like, Can I have your number? And so I gave him my business card that had my work number and my name on it. I gave it to him. He was like, okay, I'll call you later. And I was just frozen. And so we got to the next stop. The train like cleared out. He got off. And sitting across from me was this other guy. He's in his suit and he's staring at me. So I'm like, what? And he's like, did that guy just lick your ear? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't know what to say. And he was like, I didn't know we could do that. And I ain't saying, but you know, I was like, not you, did you? Anyway, but, uh, (laughs) did you see him? Uh, So I got to work, and as soon as I got into the office, the front desk lady was like, somebody call for you, but I didn't think about it. And I got to my desk, before I even sat down, my desk phone was ringing, I answered it, it's him. So he's talking, he has like a real nice voice like that, like fucking like pussy rumbler, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about. And uh, he's like just talking like mad game, and he's like, you know, yeah, girl, and I'm like, oh my God, you know. He's like, I'm going to take you out tonight, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And he's like, I'm going to meet you outside your building after work. I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) you know, all right, New York, get shit done, that's how we do it, fine. And so... He meets me outside my job, we go out, it's nice. We end up dating for about three weeks. Three weeks in, he starts meeting me up in the Bronx in the morning and riding the train in to work with me every day and then meeting me outside my job and riding all the way back up to the Bronx. So at this point, I'm like, oh, this dude is crazy. Not the air licking part, the riding to the Bronx, like, are you crazy, you know what I mean? And just like little things, like commenting on what I'm wearing, really like, where are you going? You know, ramping up. In my head, I was like, all right, I need to back off from this guy. Because I was an idiot, but, you know, I watch after school stories and shit. So uh, I was like, I got to back off from this guy. And so the day I was going to break up with him, I was coming out of my job with one of my coworkers, and he was right out front, as he always is, and she was like, who is that? So I was back in, you know what I mean? Because that's what women do sometimes. I was like, oh, that's my man, you know, what do you mean, you know? I was going to break up with him, but since you jealous, I'm going to keep him, you know? (laughs) 
he was like, okay, uh, we're going to go out. I'm going to take you to City Island. And, you know, and I'm not from New York, so I'm like, ooh, the Upper Bronx, you know? We go, we ride up, and then we get in the car. I'm like, ooh, you have a car? Like, I'm just so impressed at 19. We go to City Island, we have a good time, and we always had a good time, but this dude, he was really like, I just could not ever read him. Even when he laughed, he had the same face. It was weird, you know? He was really kind of stoic, and I just never felt like settled with him, you know? Like, you ever date somebody, and you're like, am I gonna die today? You know what I mean? Like, that kind of, it's today, today I die, you know? Like, that kind of feeling. So, after we eat, he says, I have to handle some business, which that's never a good sentence. But I'm like, okay. And so we get in the car and we go to this neighborhood and we pull to the side and a guy gets in the back seat. They're talking, but I know I'm not supposed to hear whatever the fuck they're talking about, so I'm trying to like not listen. But I hear the guy in the back say, I don't have the money today, but I'll get it to you later, right? I didn't look at air liquor. <laughs> I didn't have to look at him. Just the tone in the car told me, that's not what the fuck that dude was supposed to say. You know what I mean? So he didn't say anything. Nobody says anything. We drive and we drive. We drive to this like dark place. I still don't know where this is. Uh, it was like no houses. It was like the woods. I don't even know where it was. No houses, no street lights. And we pull over. Erlika gets out. He comes around the back. He knocks on the back window. That guy gets out. And they leave me in the car. And I'm sitting there. I can't hear anything. I can't see anything beyond the headlights. I can't see anything behind us. And I don't know how long I'm in there, but I'm thinking, I will make so many sandwiches if I get out of this shit alive. You know what I mean? Like, I will become a sandwich artist. Just so scared, you know? And so I don't know how much time passes, but Air Liquor gets back in the car and we take off. And I'm like, where the fuck is that dude? You know what I mean? Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? But I don't say anything because I want to live. So <laughs> he takes me back to my house. We pull up. And he turns to me and he says, did you have a good time? <laughs> like, he didn't just murder <laughs> some fucking dude. You know what I mean? So I say, I'm on my period. And then I jumped out the car. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> jumped out the car so now I'm like oh god I was gonna do the fade off but I gotta do the hard chop with this dude like this is crazy I um call him up that night and I'm like you know I've been thinking you know I'm fucking 19 I don't know how to break up with people and I'm just like I've been thinking you know I'm just really busy maybe we can see each other less and he instantly goes into like I don't want to have to hurt you all of the you know standard crazy man things and you know I don't know what I would do if I never saw you and da, da, da. and I'm like you know well can we well tomorrow can you give me a break can you not meet me tomorrow and he hangs up on me I get to work the next day and he calls me 27 times that day I'll never forget it was like it was four years ago I go to my co-worker and I'm like remember that guy he's not that fine he's crazy and I go uh after work I go downstairs we have a doorman and I say, I don't wanna go outside, the guy is always out there, and he helps me go through the service elevator and out of the door. And so for about two weeks, he called me up to 30 times a day, every day, and I got ushered out the back 
of the building like I'm in a fucking witness protection program for about two weeks. My office was the only office on that floor. We had a doorman and then an elevator. And so one day I'm coming out of my office and he's standing on our floor, the 16th floor. And so I just froze, which just shows like you don't, your body doesn't do what you think it's going to do. And, you know, because in my head, I was like, if I see him, I'm going to do whatever. But what I did was, uh, you know, and he's like, why won't you talk to me? You know, I missed you and I'm here every day and I'm doing this for you. And it just and I'm just so scared and I don't want to get fired and I'm embarrassed. I want people in my business because the secretary is like, what? You know, and uh So I said, okay, well, just go downstairs. I'll meet you after, I promise. Just go downstairs. I'll meet you after work. I'll be out there. Thank you. So he finally leaves, thankfully. So I go to my coworker, and I'm like bawling, like, oh, my God, the guy, he's not that fine, you know. And (laughs) it's not worth it. And she's like, I will walk you out tonight, and then we'll go to a police station. We'll get a restraining order, whatever we need to do. So work ends. We both get our stuff together. We lock arms like fucking freedom marchers, and we go downstairs. There's glass doors, and we stand there for a little while because we don't see him inside the building. So we stand there for about 10 minutes, and then we step outside of the building, and we stand there, and we don't see him for about 15 minutes. So finally, I just told her, I said, you can leave, because I was just really embarrassed. I was just so embarrassed that this woman that isn't even really my friend is in my business, and you know, I'm inconveniencing her. So it's how I felt. So I said, you know, you can leave. He's not here. Obviously, maybe he died. Who knows? And so I said, my train is right around the corner. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead. So she takes off to the right. And my train was literally right around the corner. So I go around the corner of the building. And he's standing right there, leaned up against the building. And I freeze again. (laughs) I was so scared. I didn't notice at first that it was like this big like bodybuilding type look like like she was a professional bodybuilder woman screaming in his face who is she I follow you down here every day who the fuck are you meeting in the building and I'm like oh my god my stalker has a stalker this is so fucked up New York is crazy you know what I mean and she's just screaming in his face and she slapped him who is she and like his eyes like he looked at me like you think I'm crazy and um when he looked at me, that's when I like finally got control of my body, you know what I mean? And I went around them and I went down into the train and I never heard from him again. That's my story. <laughs> that's my story. I'm pretty sure he killed that guy though. But anyway, pretty sure. <laughs> Girl, I know this might seem strange, but let me know if I'm out of order for stepping to you this way. See, I've been buying you drinks for a while, and I just gotta let you know that, bitch, you mine, so you need to give me your name and i leave you my number and you better call a nigga today as a matter of fact you just give me yours too and bitch i call you it's better to you bitch because who you think you just misled is boo boo written on my forehead i done bought them drinks 
Bitch, you is my girlfriend I don't wanna hear that shit Thought you just came out to have a nice time out and just chill Damn, didn't I tell you to call? You tried to me the wrong number And you thought you wasn't gonna see me no more But surprise, here I am in the flesh Oh, now you digging me Bitch, last night you was digging me Let me calm down, here's what we're doing tonight I'll probably go pick up my piece And when I'm through, then maybe I'ma swing by And then we gon' chill Oh, bitch, you gon' chill with me And you're gonna be comfortable, you're gonna feel secure Cause you're with me, cause who you think you fucking with You must want your shit split I done bought them drinks Bitch, you is my girlfriend My name Roller Powell I'll y'all Uh, so my mom decided to have a lot of kids, and they're all in this story, but I'm changing everyone's names. So if at any point I say a name and it wasn't ever in the story before, I probably said their real name. So I'm going to stop and go back just so I don't get sued, because there's a lot of family drama in here, and that'll cause even more family drama. So <laughs> I just prefer not to have to deal with it. Um, so when I came out to my mom, her head was actually stuck halfway up a chimney. Um, she was a smoker and she liked to smoke in the house and she thought if she opened this little vent in the chimney and like stuck her head up and blew the smoke out of the chimney that it wouldn't cause any of the smoke to come back through into the house I told her several times that this was wrong and that my eyes were burning and that the house was stinking but as stubborn as she was she did it anyways and that's where I found her when I decided to tell her that I was gay and she pulled her head out of the chimney and said, you know, you'll always be my person. And I knew at that moment that, you know, she was always going to be my protector. A few months before that, she had divorced her husband, Mark, who had given her four of my siblings. I have a different father, but I grew up thinking that these were my full-blood siblings. Thank God I didn't get along with her ex-husband, and so when he left, I was like, thank God he's out of here. And I didn't maintain a relationship with him. But right after the divorce, she took it really hard and started drinking a lot. Uh, and she ended up getting three DUIs um, over the course of a few years and going into AA. So I had just come out as a fresh new gay boy, and she was a newly open alcoholic. And so when we would go to family things, we would hear stuff like, from my grandma, who would say, if I have another faggot grandson, I'm going to kill myself. And when my mom would kind of discuss the troubles that she was having and her relapses, people would say, oh, Stacy, you're not an alcoholic. You're fine. So not a lot of support coming to either of us. So we got together one day, and we were like, we're just going to disown this side of the family. It's toxic. And soon after doing that, my mom had a year of sobriety, and I started to accept myself way more. Flash forward to last year at Thanksgiving, we had finally for the first time been able to kind of handpick who was at our Thanksgiving table, which is something that I always wanted. I always had that like hallmark vision of a Thanksgiving where 
you're all able to fit at one table and you're all able to grab from the dishes like in front of you and talk and laugh and that was not how it was obviously if someone's saying the word faggot at your Thanksgiving it wasn't <laughs> like that <laughs> so I remember looking around and thinking wow this is really nice it was me my mom our aunt Kelly one of the good ones and my siblings Stephen who's the youngest Kevin, who's the middle child, and my sister, Brittany. I have another brother. He was in the Marines at the time, so he doesn't really enter this story. Um, so we're all sitting around, and Kevin is, was the middle child, and one of the best stories I have for him is my mom would say he's always the difficult one. He's always been the difficult one. He always had ear infections. He would cry all night long. Um, I remember a time when we'd be at a restaurant, and we were having spaghetti. So we took his shirt off. He was mad that he was naked. So then we put a bib on him, and then he was mad that the bib was on. So we take the bib off, and then he was mad that he was naked again. And that was kind of our whole like, relationship with him, was just constantly struggling. And I think he kind of embodied that as he turned into a teenager, and kind of always thought the family was against him, even though we definitely weren't. We had plans to go Black Friday shopping right after our dinner, and my ex-boyfriend came there, which... Seems kind of weird, but we had dated for four years, and our relationship ended pretty well, and we remained friends, and my mom absolutely loved him, and so she would always invite him to things. So it was us and then a few friends who had come, because it was over college break, they had come in another car, but my family and my ex-boyfriend, Jack, got into my mom's 11-year-old red minivan that has rust all around the sides, so when you get in, you have to like, be careful that you just don't slice open your entire foot <laughs> as you get in, which can be dangerous with kids. Uh, so we're sitting there, and right when we pull out, Jack had brought this container of wine uh, to kind of drink on the way, and it spilled all over him. So there's this big red spot on his khakis, and he had to immediately go change. And in doing so, he took the gun out of his pocket. Uh, he was in the military and in Indiana, which is where we're from. It, you're able to carry a gun on yourself, and so he took it out and put it on the seat. I immediately got super nervous because my mom's relationship with guns was to never allow them in the house. Uh, when family members would buy us even Nerf guns at Christmas, she was like, is that another fucking Nerf gun? Like, I told you not to bring those into the house. And there would be fights on Christmas. And so growing up, I never felt good around guns. So just seeing it, I verbally said out loud, like, can we put that away? And he did. We got to where we were going, at this big shopping center, and we kind of all dispersed. I had my eye on some Banana Republic underwear because they were 50% off and it's really good underwear. Um, so I went in by myself, the only one ecstatic about that, <laughs> and saw the, you know, the rack with all the different colors and I got really excited about a pair of Santa Claus underwear because I was like, Christmas is right around the corner. I, I don't know who's going to see these. Hopefully somebody. But... <laughs> But I got really excited about them. So I got those, and I get in line. I get a phone call from one of my friends. She doesn't sound too worried, but she's like, hey, there's some sirens in the parking lot. I don't know what's going on. You might want to come out here. I'm like, it's Black Friday. You know, police are doing crazy shit. Like, who knows what that was? And so I'm standing in line, just waiting, and I get a second phone call, and she has a little more 
you know, mm, in her voice. And she's like, I think you should really come. Like, I think the ambulance is actually at your car. And I'm like, the kid's probably like shoplifted or did something stupid that a little kid would do. Like, not a big deal. And so I'm still waiting in line. And then I get up to check out. And I know everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about when I say it took forever because I didn't know whether to stick the card in the machine or swipe it. So I'm sitting there and it feels like it's taking forever and I kind of know that I have this other thing that I need to be dealing with, um, but I don't know what it is. And I get this third call and they're like, your mom is in the ambulance, you need to get out here now. And I don't know if I had this weird, like my mom's invincible type thing going on in my head, but I was like, it's fine. Like I'll just like casually get my underwear and I just really wanted the underwear. (laughs) And I kind of, remember jogging back to our van, it was a little bit of a distance, and the thoughts in my head were like, I wonder if there's food at home, like, I'm getting kind of hungry, I wonder, like, I wonder what people are going to be wanting to do next, like, I wonder if we'll go to, like, JCPenney, or, like, what we'll do, and so I get there, and there's no one, it's like a scene out of The Walking Dead, no one around, and I kind of enter this black hole of being alone, because what I do see is all of the doors on the van are open, there's a shattered wine glass on the ground and then there's this big red stain all over the passenger seat but I don't know if it's wine or blood and so I'm kind of like in this world trying to figure out like I've just entered a real life clue game like what are the pieces here what's happening and I kind of stay in there what feels like a very very long time until I hear this police officer say my name He's like Tommy are you Tommy And for whatever reason, my instinct was to pull out my ID, which is actually Thomas Craven. So I'm, like, explaining to him, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, everyone calls me Tommy. Like, I'm Thomas. And, like, just go on this rant because I'm super nervous. And I was like, my siblings are, like, my siblings, but not, like, really. Like, we have a different thought. Like, I just start, like, going into our entire family history. And he's like, well, we just wanted to let you know that your mom was shot in the leg. And it was actually kind of, like, relief. Like, okay, no one's going to get you know, die from getting shot in the leg, it's fine. So I start to come back to reality, and I actually realized that the whole time that I thought I was alone, I was actually being surrounded by, like, all these bystanders who had come out of the Target, had come out of the Walmart, kind of surrounded themselves around this crime scene, and I can even see my friends on the outskirts, like, trying to get in, but they're not letting them. And then a detective comes over, and the first question she asks me is, has Kevin ever been violent? And I didn't know what to say because I had no context. Like, yeah, he plays, like, violent video games, but he's not, like, violent. He's never killed an animal, like, those kind of things. She's like, well, would he have any reason to hurt your mom? And I was like, well, he does have the middle child syndrome. And joking. And, but she, like, was not joking. She was like, is, (laughs) like, would he do something? And then I see Jack, my ex, come and he's just bawling, which had never happened in our entire relationship, which was probably one reason why we weren't in a relationship. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry, like, she was just shot in the leg, it's fine. And then the detective goes, oh no, she was shot in the stomach, through the back. And I immediately, like, dread comes over my face because I'm just assuming that they've been lying about the leg to keep people calm, like, that she you know, was probably dead, and that's why they said leg, especially with my siblings being so young. And then Jack says, 
yeah, and it was Kevin with my gun. And so I opened the envelope in the final piece of the clue game and found that, you know, my brother had shot my mom with my ex-boyfriend's gun. And so I immediately go into this weird parental mode. And I'm like, okay, where are the kids? They're like, well, we don't know if Kevin did this on purpose or an accident, so we have to keep him. But you can have your little brother, Stephen. So I pull Stephen out of a cop car, which is just like a traumatizing thing to do with an 11-year-old. And his face is just pure white because I learned that he actually had seen the shooting. He says, you know, is mom going to be okay? And I do what my mom would have done. And she's like, yeah, of course, she's going to be fine. So we all get together and go to the hospital where my mom's already been transported. And along the way, kind of start to get the details from Jack. And what had happened was my mom had taken Kevin and Steven out so that she could smoke and they could go to another store. And she had actually opened the passenger door and sat on the seat halfway with the cigarette outside of the door so that it wouldn't come into the van, even though it definitely did. (laughs) And Kevin and Steven were in the back and Kevin found Jack's gun and figured out how to load it and shot it. And it went through the seat into my mom. So we get to the hospital and I'm still in this parental mode. My sister Brittany had gone with my mom in the ambulance. So I find her, get her together, and we just wait while she's in surgery. And finally, Mark, the kid's dad, shows up with Kevin. And we all really didn't know how to react to him because we had a lot of doubt on whether he did this on purpose or not. Like, we knew in our hearts that he didn't, but we couldn't comprehend it at the time. A few hours later, a doctor in a white row, very TV-esque, like, comes in and he says all this doctor stuff. And I am just a very blunt person. I said, what do I need to prepare for? That's the kind of mode that I'm in. And he says, you should start preparing. And I knew exactly what that meant. And then he asked if I would be okay with the kids seeing her. Mark said, no, they don't need to see their mom like that. And I was like, fuck you. They need to see their mom. Because my mom had told me the story. Her mom had died from ovarian cancer when she was 15. And my mom had spent her entire time with her in her last days. And she had always told me she really cherished that time with her. So, like, they're going to be there. So I led them up and opened the door. And it's the first time that I've ever seen my mom this vulnerable with all of her relapses with alcoholism. Never like this. She had tubes shoved down her throat was passed out with her head to the side, drool coming down, and her stomach was all the way open from where they had done surgery. And so there I am, you know, standing tall with my siblings behind me, and I realized that our roles had just dramatically changed. And one of the ways that they changed is that by that time in the media, it had gotten out that she had been shot. She actually was coined the target lady, Um, because she was shot in the Target parking lot, and also Target, like, uh (laughs) ha-ha. And um, my family that we had disowned found out, 
And then people do that thing where death comes around and they start to feel really guilty about shit. So they start contacting me, trying to come to the hospital, trying to send money. And I did, again, what my mom would have done, which was like, no, you don't get to do this now. You don't get to do this when we're our most vulnerable, when we don't have our strength, when we don't have our voice. My mom doesn't. You don't get to come in here and try to exonerate yourself, try to rid yourself of this guilt in this moment. So I barred them from coming to the hospital, from giving money, from really contacting any of my siblings, because that's what my mom would have done. And then she woke up. And three surgeries later, she recovered. And I was sitting with her when she finally woke up for the first time, like actually conscious, and she had kind of heard everything that I was doing. She just couldn't respond to it before. And she said, you did the right thing. You did exactly what I would have wanted. So over the course of a few months, we had to do rehabilitation. And we were sitting there one day, and we realized after looking at some pictures of like the van and where the bullet had gone that if she hadn't been conscious about leaning out of the car to get the smoke out of the van, that the bullet actually would have landed right in her spine if you were sitting in the seat properly. Also in that moment, and through her rehabilitation, I realized that I had taken the role on as her protector and that we were always going to have that mutual relationship because of our experiences together. And I realized that no one else was going to do that for us. That's it.
This is Risk. This is the revivalist behind me now. And we just heard from Tommy Craven. He was a storytelling virgin. That was his first time ever getting up on stage and sharing like that. That was at our recent show in Baltimore. And what a great job he did. Before that, we heard a little comedy bit by Lil Duval, uh, the archetypal character who buys you a drink and then thinks you owe him everything. Now, I am sure you have heard of Blue Apron. Have you heard of Blue Apron? What they do is they deliver meals that you have all the ingredients and you can make it at home. And these are only the very best local ingredients. The beef is raised humanely. The chickens are free range. The pork is raised naturally. They ship the exact amount of each ingredient. So it's reducing food waste, cooking together. They say builds relationships. You know, research shows that Blue Apron families cook together nearly three times more often. And some of the meals available in January are seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney, spaghetti swash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots, spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furry cocky. I, I don't know what that is, but it sounds very exciting. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash risk. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash risk. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Our final story today comes to us from Ryan Stroud who did such a great job on our, our last Halloween episode with the story he told about, what was the name of the Hawaiian goddess Pele? Uh, but this is a story he shared with us at our recent show in New Orleans. We call this one The Kingpin. So I'm gonna stand here by your fire Cause it's a cold one tonight Taking care of so fine And you're the reason why For as long as I live, I will always remember the first time that I set foot in a marijuana field. You know, it was pretty small by outdoor marijuana standards. The plants were only about chest high, and the crop itself was kind of small, was perched on the side of this steep hill. But you know, there was just something absurdly wonderful about being there in broad daylight with all this weed. <laughs> and it was so wonderful that I got this smile on my face that was so big that afterward my face hurt for a week. Prior to that, I'd been living in Portland, Oregon, and big surprise, right? 
And, you know, my life at the time was kind of headed nowhere. I was at this party, and it was just ending, and the sun was coming up, and I'm standing around with a bunch of friends talking about the fact that my life is going nowhere. And one of them says, hey, have you ever thought about going and making some money in the marijuana industry down in Northern California? Well, the truth is, the answer to that question was no. I've never thought about that. But that's not what I said. Instead, what I said was, yeah, I have thought about that. Do you know anyone who's hiring? <laughs> and they looked me dead in the eye and just so convincingly said, oh man, there's so much work down there. All you have to do is show up and you'll get a job. And I was like, really? Are you sure? And they just looked me square in the eye and said, yeah, just show up and it'll all work out. And I really had so little going on in my life at the time that within like three days, I had packed what few possessions I had into the back of my 1985 Toyota Land Cruiser and I just started heading south. And as I twisted and turned past the Douglas firs and the cedar trees of Oregon, heading toward the tan oaks and those beautiful towering redwoods of Northern California, I just had those words rolling through my mind like, just show up, it'll all work out. And you know what, as soon as I got there, within hours, I ran into somebody who I'd randomly met a few years earlier and they introduced me to somebody who introduced me to someone else, and the next thing I knew, I was in this little unfinished room with bare plywood floors in an old convenience store that had once been the headquarters for a local chapter of Hell's Angels, <laughs> and that was now the headquarters for a legendary marijuana kingpin. The kingpin was a middle-aged man with a medium build. He had disheveled salt and pepper hair. As long as I knew him, he always wore the same exact thing every single day, which was blue jeans, skate shoes, and a hoodie. He spoke with a bit of a raspy voice from smoking marijuana morning, noon, and night for years and years. And the legend was that his father had also been in the cannabis industry and in fact was famous for having shipped massive amounts of hash all around the globe in the keel of sailboats. And for whatever reason, he took a liking to me and he determined that I had a green thumb and he assigned me a property in his marijuana kingdom. I had two basic responsibilities and the primary responsibility was to grow as much marijuana as I possibly could with the deal being that I could have half of whatever I grew. <laughs> and my other responsibility was that anytime he called I was to answer my cell phone and drop you know whatever I was doing whenever he called and drive down this dirt road to his headquarters, which was about 45 minutes from the property I was on, and help him manage whatever crisis may have broken out. I saw this as my big opportunity. Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> I 
I mean, I was going to make a lot of money. At least that's what I thought. I knew it would be enough money if I pulled it off that I could travel the world for a few years or I could buy a house back in Portland. And I, I even thought maybe I'd go back to school and get the graduate degree that I'd always dreamed of. It, it didn't matter. Whatever I did, this was going to open up a whole new world for me. And I knew that's something I wanted the property that he assigned me to was miles from anything resembling civilization, and I absolutely loved it. I made a home out of a hammock that I hung under a grove of trees, and I put up a wire fence on these steel posts that I pounded into the ground. And inside of that, I put 100 plastic gardening containers, and I filled them with 300 bags of soil that I bought at the nearest plant nursery, which was an hour and a half away, and I drove them up the mountain to my crop, 30 bags at a time. And I fertilized it all with bat guano, buckets and buckets of it. And I watered my garden with a water system that I made out of a natural spring there on the hill. And it was beautiful. For months, I lived out under the stars. It was incredible, truly. In, in the morning, you know, I'd wake at pre-dawn, that moment before the light actually breaks across the sky, and the birds would be chirping. And I'd reach down the side of my hammock. I always had this little pack by my side, and I'd pull out a little weed, and I'd roll a joint, and I'd light it. Ah, take a couple good puffs. And then I'd walk into my garden. And because I was pretty much completely alone on the mountain all the time, I never wore clothes. <laughs> and I never wore shoes. So I would walk just butt naked and barefoot down into my crop. And there, surrounded by 100 plants of weed, I would start to water. And it was beautiful. There were these little green frogs that lived in my garden. And they would hop up in the plants and they'd jump from limb to limb to get the spray of the water. There were these incredibly beautiful snakes that would slither around in the grass there. And my best friends became praying mantises and these incredibly beautiful, colorful spiders and the deer that lived on the land and the bear that would periodically wander through and bobcats. And I was always finding the footprints of mountain lions, and there was always the sound of coyotes in the night. And then after about four months had gone by, and my crop was in full bloom, the buds were the size of footballs. I don't know if you've ever seen outdoor plants, but they get ginormous, eight, 10 feet tall, 12 feet across, 10, 12 inches across at the base. And my crop's in full bloom and my phone rings. And it's the kingpin and he's insisting that I drop everything and come down the mountain and help him manage something that's happened. So I do. And he says to me that some thieves have broken into one of the other crops that one of his other people is managing and has stolen a couple of pounds of weed. But apparently these same thieves had gotten a look at the rest of that crop, which at that point was worth close to half a million dollars, and they decided it was worth it to come back for more, and they'd assembled a whole crew of people, 
which was now stalking the crop like a gang of pirates, just waiting for the perfect opportunity to come back and just rip off as much of it as they can. So the kingpin assigns me and about a dozen other men to guard this crop. We built a little wall out of sandbags. And for an entire week, 24 hours a day, we took turns and shifts guarding this crop. At night, we'd see little lights bobbing around in the forest around us. Occasionally, gunshots would ring out. And all the time, I'm worrying and worrying about my own crop. You know, I'm worrying that deer are going to jump over the fence and come in and eat my garden. I'm worried that the timers that I've set are not going to deliver the right amount of water. And most of all, of course, I'm worried that thieves are going to discover my own crop and I'm going to lose everything that I have worked for. And then one hot afternoon, things are getting really intense, and I look over at the battle-hardened man next to me, a man who has been through war, a man who I've always seen as being unflappable. And he has on his face an actual look of worry and concern. And I think, you know, I might be in over my head. And so when the kingpin comes up the hill later that day to see for himself how things are going, I go up to him and I, I say, hey, you know, I, I need to get back to my own crop. I think I need to get out of here. I need to take care of, you know, my own situation. And, and he says, no, no, you're going to stay right here. You're going to guard this. And I look in his eyes and I see this conniving look that I hadn't noticed before. I don't know if it hadn't been there or if I had chosen to not notice it, but I saw it clear as day. And it dawned on me that I really didn't trust him one bit. And I don't know, maybe there was just a lot of paranoia in the air, but I started thinking, what if thieves are stealing from me right now everything that I work for? And what if they work for this guy what if he has a plan to get everything I've worked for and leave me with nothing? And so I look him back in the eyes and I say, no, no, I got to go, man. We've got a deal. You know, I've given you my word. I'm going to deliver. And it's a matter of honor. I'm, I'm leaving. And he goes, no, fuck you, man. You're staying right here. And I look him back in the eyes and I say, no, Fuck you. I'm out of here. And he leans down and he picks up a pair of razor sharp pruning shears. They're like these massive bolt cutters. And he says, if you leave, I am going to cut off your goddamn balls. <laughs> now remember, there are a bunch of men on the mountain with us at this moment. And I look around at all of them. There's like all dozen of them there. Every one of us is armed. Men are carrying handguns, assault rifles, shotguns. I could run, but where would I go? And if I leave, I lose everything that I have worked for. And then something just snapped inside of me. And I did something 
that you're probably not supposed to do in a situation like this, which is I just turned my back and I walked away. And I fully expected to hear a gunshot and I was completely expecting that a white hot bullet would rip through my flesh, but it didn't happen. And they all just watched me walk away in silence. I, I honestly, I think everyone was just kind of in shock. And I went back up the mountain to my own crop, which I was relieved to discover was safe and sound. After that, I fully expected the kingpin to come up there with the posse and kill me or kick me off the land. But he didn't do it. I made a couple phone calls. I got a crew of friends to come down from Portland and they camped out with me for a couple weeks while we harvested my crop and dried it and trimmed it and packaged it up. And when we were done, I drove back down that winding dirt road to the Kingpin's headquarters. I pulled up in his driveway. I had the full harvest in the back of my vehicle. One pound bags put into 10 50-gallon garbage bags, had about 10 of those 50-gallon garbage bags full of weed filled up the vehicle to the point I could not see out of any windows except right in front of me and out the driver window. I carried those bags in to the headquarters, into that little room with the unfinished plywood floors and I laid those bags down at the kingpin's feet, two bags at a time. He opened them up, pulled out random samples of weed and you know, pinched it between his fingers, gave things a smell Took him a while to look it all over, but when he was done, he nodded his approval and he handed me a duffel bag full of money. I walked outside, went to my vehicle, I was about to hop in and I heard the door open behind me. And I turned around and I saw that the kingpin had followed me out. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I still thought he was gonna kill me. We just kind of stared at each other for a few moments. And then he got a grin on his face. And I grinned back and he came over and he said, crazy season, eh? <laughs> I said, yeah, crazy season. <laughs> and then we just sat there and we chatted for a few minutes like a couple of old farmers leaning on a fence, staring out across the field. Which in a way we were. And then he went back inside and I climbed in my vehicle and fired it up and started heading north for the winter. And as I drove, passing those tan oaks and those towering redwoods in Northern California, heading back toward the cedar trees and the Douglas firs of Oregon, I thought about everything I'd been through down there. And I thought, you know what? It actually did work out. Not that it was easy, there were some moments that I thought I was gonna die. But in the end, it all worked out. So as I drove, I got this big smile on my face because I realized not only had I survived this experience, you know, there was something absurdly wonderful about the fact that I had also got out of there with a duffel bag so full of money that it hurt my back to carry. 
And I smiled so hard that it hurt my face for a week. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is the heavy behind me now and we just heard from ryan stroud now we have so many amazing live shows coming up the first of which is in austin texas on january 18th 2017 the next day we're in houston texas that's january 19th and the day after that we're in dallas texas That's January 20th. So come out and see us, Texas. On January 21st, we're in Los Angeles. That is always at the Bootleg Theater. And if you heard our last episode, you know how much fun our Los Angeles show is every month. Also, every month is our Brooklyn show at the Bell House. The next one is January 25th. Phoebe Robinson from Two Dope Queens will be there. Then on January 27th, We'll be back in San Francisco, an all-star cast, great cast for our January 27th San Francisco show. On February 17th, we'll be back in Carborough, North Carolina. We're still taking pitches for that one. The theme that night is, what? And uh, we've already got some fabulous pitches in for it. So February 17th, we're in Carborough, North Carolina. Remember, you can pitch us your stories at any time if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Maybe you know an older person who might like to share a story on the show. Maybe you know someone who has had extraordinary sorts of experiences with whatever, but prostitution, good or bad experiences, homelessness, drug addiction near-death sorts of experiences. We are always on the lookout for extraordinary stories, and we're always there at risk-show.com slash submissions. We want to help people share their stories. We coach you, we give you guidance, we go through a whole workshopping process with you. So pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.
Easter egg. You up? I'm up now.